Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Daniel chapter 5. Daniel 5, we're back again to this timely book that we've been studying, focusing on the first uh, six chapters, these Aramaic narratives about faith, courage, and exile. Uh, records of historical events that put God and his sovereignty on center stage. I'm going to just read Daniel 5, 1 through 6. I'd invite you to please stand, if you would, for the reading of God's word, not out of respect for the one who reads, but for the one who speaks. Daniel 5, 1 through 6. This is God's word. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. This ends the reading of God's Word. Let's pray. Father, as our Savior prayed for us, sanctify us in the truth. Your Word is truth. Show us Christ in His grace this morning in this chilling picture of the judgment awaiting those who don't know Christ. A picture that challenges and encourages those who long for justice in our own stories. By the power of the Holy Spirit, make us people who daily cling to the hope of our great King's return. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. There is no doubt in my mind in a room filled with this many people that some of us have experienced injury from others directly, painfully, and personally. All of us have at times watched the twisted a world, the, the twisted sin of the world encroach on the lives of people created in God's image. Even those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Even upon those we love. And we look up to heaven like the martyr standing under the throne in Revelation, and we've said, how long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? So if you've been hurt or injured, abused, wronged, uh, if you suffered injustice, pain, and suffering at the hands of others, Daniel 5 is a chapter perhaps especially for you. But it's a chapter that might not immediately satisfy you. I say that because we see in this chapter uh, this swift justice that's brought against a wicked ruler, an oppressive, godless man. And justice is swift and it's over for this king. And then you may see that and say, well, what gives? Like the psalmist Asaph in Psalm 73, uh, you look at the opening of this chapter and you see Belshazzar's crazy display of godlessness, his pride and his sense of invincibility. And you see in Belshazzar that individual in your own story and you say, 
look at these losers, quoting Psalm 73 from the Christian Standard Bible. Look at them. They have an easy time until they die, and their bodies are well fed. They are not in trouble like others. They are not afflicted like most people. Therefore, pride is their necklace, and violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge out from fatness. The imaginations of their hearts run wild. They mock and they speak maliciously. They arrogantly threaten oppression. They set their mouths against heaven, and their tongues strut across the earth. Therefore, his people turn to them and drink in their overflowing words. The wicked say, how can God know? Does the Most High know everything? And you see the justice that seems slow in your own experience and your own story, and you start to wonder if, in fact, God does know everything, as Asaph wonders. Or as the NIV translates that last verse, does the Most High know anything? Or you might be here, and you're the one who thinks that God doesn't know everything, and you're banking on that fact. Whether you are just continuing to dabble in darkness just a little bit, or you are walking with your head held high thinking God will never hold you accountable. Does the Most High know? What I want to show you in this chapter is that the Most High God does indeed know. He knows everything, and He's going to do something about it. It's a sobering message that requires our repentance, and it's also an encouraging message that holds out hope in our pain. Uh, God indeed does know everything, and He will do something about it. That's really the message uh, that's on repeat in this playlist of events that's recorded in Daniel 1-6. through It's a message for exiles. Exiles then and exiles now. God is sovereign. He is in control. Kingdoms fall, but King Jesus reigns forever. It's what gives us courage in our exile in Babylon, in our pilgrim life, knowing and trusting that God sees everything and that He has and He will do something about it. So there are many lessons to learn in Daniel 5, but that's the main thing I want you to see. God sees and knows what you're going through, and God will do something about it. He has done something about it in the person and work of Jesus. So, that setting the stage for what we'll look at in Daniel 5. Let's walk through this story under four headings or four scenes in the events recorded here. We'll look at a brazen bash, a shocking sign, a faithful witness, and a devastating downfall. First, a brazen bash. The scene that unfolds in Daniel 5 is simply shocking on a number of levels. Uh, There's a new king in town, a descendant of Nebuchadnezzar, And he was once thought to be a fairy tale of biblical invention because there was no record of Belshazzar in the annals of history. They couldn't find any trace of Belshazzar. That in itself is a little shocking, at least if you're reading this story up until the mid-19th century. But I'm gathering this historical background from David Helms' commentary. Uh, In 1853 and 1854, John George Taylor archaeologist and emissary of the British Museum, found himself near Babylon in the land of Ur, excavating a ziggurat, it's like a tiered pyramid, built in honor of the moon god. Without knowing it, Taylor was about to solve a long-standing puzzle in Daniel's historical record. He discovered what, we are, what are now known as the Nabonidus Cylinders. Until this discovery, historians had observed a succession of four Babylonian kings in the historical records. Nebuchadnezzar, 
and Amel Marduk, Nergal Shar Susur, and Labashi Marduk, the Nabonidus. But Helm tells us these cylinders, they speak of another ruler in Babylon, Belshazzar, son of Nabonidus. From the inscription, we learn that Belshazzar had been given charge over Babylon while his father made a trip to a distant place. So it wasn't a fairy tale after all. It wasn't a fairy tale. One point Bible, zero points naysayers. Now, actually, many more points than that. Uh, I haven't taken a lot of time to look at much historical background as we walk through these chapters. Uh, you only have so much time in a sermon, and it's only so helpful. But I think this is important enough to pause and consider it. The testimony of the Holy Spirit is enough. Even when there's seeming gaps or incongruities uh, in what the Bible says, sooner or later, the historical record has borne it out over and over again. The Holy Spirit is enough. Westminster Larger Catechism 4 says that the Spirit of God bearing witness by and with the Scriptures in the heart of man is alone able fully to persuade it that they are the very Word of God. But discoveries like these add confidence to our faith. They add confidence. It's always great when you see uh, scholars who once mocked Scripture on this point or that later eating crow and admitting that the biblical record was right after all. It helps us know that we can trust what we're reading. The cylinders solved the mystery of Belshazzar. So that's the first shocking thing, but it's not so shocking anymore because that mystery solved. It's also really shocking just to see how Belshazzar acts in this story. His behavior is outlandish, almost to the point of caricature. It's this nearly comical display of man's puny defiance of God. This lavish party in which the pagan king uses the vessels taken from God's temple in Jerusalem uh, and guzzles wine from them with his harem in front of a thousand rulers. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. How can a conscience hold an object that's so holy, knowing good and well where it came from, and praise the gods of metal and stick, unless this conscience is thoroughly seared. I think we see that in this story. It's shocking. It's brazen. How does this man sleep at night? Some have pointed out that it's like Belshazzar believes that he has God firmly in his grasp as he wraps his fingers around these holy vessels and he throws back wine with his concubines and rulers. His neck stiffened to heaven in defiance, his drunken spit staining these holy vessels from the tabernacle. It's grotesque. It's shocking. Uh, the English Puritan William Gurnall wrote about people who had been told that Almighty God would damn their souls without repentance, and yet they sleep like babies at night. He said, what must their pillows be stuffed with? Do you ever look around and wonder that? Maybe it's a friend you've shared the faith with over and over, and he still refuses to give up living life on his own terms. And you think, how does he sleep at night? What must his pillow be stuffed with? You look at various positions of authority in society, local, national government, and you think, I could never sleep at night if I were doing that. I want to know where they get that kind of pillow. Or maybe it's what I called earlier the Belshazzar in your experience. All joking about pillows aside, if you hear this brazen, brazen bash described and you associate it with that person in your story, it probably makes your blood run cold. It would certainly make an exile from Judah's blood run cold to see this scene that Daniel paints. 
hearing about this defiance of God using the holy vessels taken from the temple. Where is God and why is He allowing the abuse of His holy vessels? Where is God and why is He allowing the abuse of His holy people? That's what exiles are thinking. Our blood runs cold, and if we don't take the message of Daniel 5 to heart, then our faith can turn cold too. And I want you to hear this. If you're someone who's sleeping soundly, even as you sin against God, uh, maybe not as an unjust ruler who has the tribe of Judah under his thumb, but in all the many ways that your sin and rebellion can manifest itself in your life, then this next scene in the story should be just as frightening for you as it was for Belshazzar. Suddenly, and this takes us to the next scene, suddenly God crashes the party with a shocking sign. A shocking sign. Matthew Henry falling prey to that problem all of us preachers face, trying to make all of his points alliterate, start with the same letter. He says, the king affronted God and then God affrighted the king. I think that's pretty good. It's actually exactly what happened. The king is affronting God and then God crashes his party and terrifies him. Belshazzar had stuck his finger in God's eye and now God pokes his finger in Belshazzar's chest. Or we could say he had taken God in his hands, wrapping his fingers around the temple cups. And now God takes Belshazzar's life into his hand and he begins scratching a message of judgment on the plaster of the banquet hall, across from the lampstand, where everyone could see and read this message. Look with me at verse 6. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. Our English translations have so many polite ways to say that someone was freaking out. You see it over and over again, and you see it here too. That's verse 6. Belshazzar's freaking out. The blood drains from the king's face. His blood pressure drops. And the Aramaic idiom here translated, his knees knocked together. What it literally says is the joints of his loins were loosened. You do the math on that one. You read between the lines. All of the exiles in Judah knew exactly what that idiom meant. There's this mockery and humor in the way that Daniel describes the effect on Belshazzar. The air is suddenly sucked out of the room and he realizes this isn't just a figment of his wine-soaked imagination. Everyone else is seeing this too. This is a divine message. It's a shocking, terrifying sign. Look with me in verse 7. It feels like deja vu. We've seen this over and over again. Verse 7, the king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. It's incredible how quickly God can get someone's attention, isn't it? We've seen that all through Daniel. Kings on top of the world, strolling the tops of their palaces, boasting their achievements, feasting with their harem in front of a thousand lords in their kingdom, only to be reduced to puddles, literally in Belshazzar's case, reduced to puddles in front of the God who humbles mighty kings. Suddenly filled with uncertainty, fear, and desperate need. And as you know, God continues to reduce the proud to puddles of need. It may not happen through a dream, it might, not be the diag- it might be the diagnosis or the red and blue lights in the rearview mirror or an unexpected economic downturn. It might be a Dear John letter. You see, God can take our confidence in our health, our security, our relational stability, uh, and turn it on a dime when we've blindly trusted in our own invincibility, our own ability, our own worth and expertise, and he is coming to humble us. Suddenly, the proud, drunk, arrogant king Uh, He's suddenly looking for a God in the house. 
He sure didn't need God moments ago, but now he's looking for a God in the house. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. I wonder if your pride has ever been reduced to puddles like this and suddenly you're looking for a God in the house. Do you remember a moment like that in your life? If he hasn't, don't wait for the writing on the wall. Turn to God now before he comes to turn you to face him. A dear friend of mine in California, a pastor uh, in San Diego, he had a hard day this week, but something encouraged him. Uh, At the end of a hard day, uh, the first thing he saw when he hit the road heading home was a county sheriff's bus transporting people to the county jail. And he said, there was a time when I was on the other side of those windows far too often. God gave me the reminder I needed at just the right time. Well, of course, as we've come to expect, uh, the religious experts in Babylon shake their heads. They have no idea what's going on. Uh, They've got nothing when the message is from God. Uh, It's like when you call customer service and you ask that question that's not on their list, right? And you know it's not on their list. They haven't been approved with a response for that one. It's enough to make you say like Belshazzar, if you just answer my question, I will clothe you in purple and place a gold chain around your neck. You will be the third ruler in my kingdom. Could you please hold? (laughs) And these guys don't have a manager to consult for an approved response. They have nothing. They have nothing to say to the king. But then someone suggests they call in the man who's been able to do this all along. He's always been able to handle the hard questions. That takes us to the next scene. We've seen the brazen bash, the shocking sign, and now in verse 10, someone reminds the king of a faithful witness. A faithful witness. Someone has suggested that this is Belshazzar's mom uh, who comes to him and reminds him of the man named Daniel uh, who can handle questions like this because the king is already there with his wives and his concubines, and it's pretty hard to get a royal audience as far as we know uh, from reading the stories of the Bible, Uh, but moms can get away with pretty much anything. And so that's a fair point. This may be Mrs. Nabonidus. So mom arrives and she knows a thing or two because she's mom. And she says, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom the spirit of the holy gods resides. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Here it's worth mentioning, and think about this with me for a minute. Daniel is an old man at this point. He's not the youth who stood by faith in the king's court, refusing to eat of the king's table because he would not enter into covenant according to Near Eastern custom with this new king. He already has a covenant God and king. He will do his best to navigate exile with distinction, contributing uh, to the program of Babylon, but he's going to walk a fine line and he will not compromise. But this isn't that young man anymore. His life of faithfulness as a member of God's kingdom uh, while living in this pagan kingdom has resulted, as we've seen, over and over in promotion. He gets job promotion after job promotion. He gets more responsibility. And it's been punctuated with these moments that he records in the book when he's had to take a stand for God and address the problem of living as God's man in a pagan land. But by and large, 
His life, at least from what he records here, isn't action-packed day after day after day. It's not a daily exercise in great feats of boldness where he takes a stand every single moment in the king's court. It's been some 30 years since the last story he recorded. It seems his life in the in-between, you know, living what Eugene Peterson rightly called a long obedience in the right direction. That was Daniel's life. He was living a long obedience in the right direction. But that continuing faithfulness, that long persevering obedience is what prepares him to face the matter at hand. That's instructive for us, I think. No doubt you can see how that reflects God's calling in your life. I doubt that every single day you wake up and have to take this bold kind of stand that we're seeing here. You don't face the fiery furnace every day. Some days, yes, but not every day. Some days, mom, dad, you wake up and you just think, how am I going to get the kids fed and through the school day without losing my mind? Students, it's probably not the lion's den that you think of every time the alarm clock goes off, but it's the exam you have to prepare for, the paper that you have to write. How am I going to get through this and navigate the complexities of the world in which we live, remaining faithful to God? It's that long obedience in the same direction, aspiring, as Paul said, to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. And that's what prepares you for those moments when you're called upon by a person whose reality has just been ripped open by God to give them answers and hope and to point them to someone who can save them. That's what prepares you for those moments. So Daniel is brought before the king. And he says the king can keep the purple and the robe and the gold chain. He doesn't want any of it. And this faithful witness, uh, he's going to give the Lord's words to uh, Belshazzar and explain their meaning. But he's also going to take the opportunity to call the king, just like he did with Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to call the king to repent. This history lesson that Daniel gives Belshazzar about how God had humbled proud Nebuchadnezzar, maybe even drawing him to faith in the true and living God. This wasn't something that Belshazzar didn't know. It wasn't something he was unaware of. But the message didn't stick. Look with me at verse 22 and following. Starting in verse 22, Daniel says, And you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. What a sermon given to King Belshazzar. What a message. And it's Daniel's continued trust in the God who humbles kings and his continued faithfulness to God in this pagan land that prepares him to deliver this kind of a message. It seems Daniel hopes the king will hear and believe and turn from from his sin and turn to God. This God who has turned him to face him in this moment through this message. He certainly wishes no ill toward the king. We don't see any hint of that. This message is delivered. God has carved it into the walls of the banquet hall. Verses 24 and following, Daniel says, Then from his presence, from God's presence, the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. 
Mene. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. It's a sobering message. It's a frightening message that's freighted with meaning. I'm convinced that Ian Duguid gets it right when he observes that Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson, uh, they form this sequence of weights, decreasing from a Mina, Mene, to a Shekel, in Aramaic, Tekel, one-sixtieth of a Mina, to half a Shekel, Perez. This sequence of decay that the vision of Daniel 2 anticipated for world history, moving from gold to silver to bronze to fragile feet of iron and clay, this found a foreshadowing within the history of the Babylonian Empire. Like the sequence of weights in the oracle, the once mighty kingdom became insubstantial and was ultimately blown away by the judgment of God. That's the message. It's the message that all proud hearts need to hear. It's a message that our hearts need to hear. Especially when we think we've got our hands squarely wrapped around God as we continue to sin against Him. Just because God's hand of judgment and writing mene mene tekel and parson hasn't appeared in your living room carving a message on the wall, don't imagine for a second that that message will not come and that God does not see and does not know what's happening. It's very relevant for us because of this final scene we're going to consider. We've seen a brazen bash, a shocking sign, a faithful witness, and then finally a devastating downfall. Daniel provided great customer service. He was, he was clothed in the purple and he was given the gold chain. It's, it's just all so much noise to Daniel. He doesn't care. And the, the promotion, it just seems because of what happens so next, it rings so hollow. It doesn't matter at all. It's the last thing Belshazzar should have been thinking about because we read in verses 30 and 31, that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. More on Darius the Mede next week. But this was judgment day for Belshazzar. Babylon is over. He's flaunting his pride and his prestige and his power while judgment was waiting at the gate. It was right there waiting. The fall of the empire in one night, that's actually reflected in the historical record. There was no empty promise scrawled on the banquet hall plaster wall. It was a message that came true. And it's an apt picture for the judgment that awaits all of those who don't turn to God in faith, turning from their sins before he turns them to face him. Circling back now to that reality that you might be wrestling with, why is God slow in bringing justice in my story? It seems to happen so quickly in Daniel 5. I can say that I don't know why the Belshazzar in your story hasn't met justice any more than I know why the Belshazzar in this story met justice in a single night. Uh, I do know that the Bible gives us reasons why God is sometimes slow, at least humanly speaking, uh, to send down judgment and to bring justice. We know that He will bring justice on the final day. God tells us through Paul in 2 Thessalonians 1 that God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might 
when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. A day of judgment is coming, just as certain as mene, mene, tekel, and parson. The judge will repay with affliction those who afflict you. But just because Belshazzar's brazen pride and devastating downfall spans the space of just one chapter in the biblical record, that's no reason to think that God won't come and do something about what he sees going on in your life. He will. He has, and he will. The Apostle Peter in his second epistle writes, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. God does see. God does know everything you're going through, and he will do something about it. But Peter says the Lord is patient, not wishing that any should perish. God will do something, but we can't forget that God has done something. Even living with the pain of that person in your story or the pain of those who you love and that looming in your mind, never forget that we are all Belshazzars. We are all guilty of raising our fist against God in rebellion and sin. We've gripped God's holy vessels in our hands and defied our Maker, saying, I think I'm God in my story. So the message for everyone here this morning is reach repentance. Turn to Jesus today. Cling to Him before God turns you to face Him in judgment. Repent and turn to Jesus. God has provided someone to be afflicted in the place of all of us who have raised a defiant fist against God in our sin. The wrath of God against your sin outstrips anything that you could possibly face ever in this life. And God has done something about that. He's done something about it. He's poured out His wrath against your sin on His own beloved Son in your place. This devastating downfall, completely undeserved. That's what Jesus experienced that day on the cross. But he's overcome it in victory. And no devastating downfall can come your way because of what Jesus has done. Can't happen. If by faith you're looking to Jesus and you run to him today, then God's justice was poured out on Christ in your place. Well, an Australian preacher, Simon Manchester, he reflects so wonderfully on this hope that we have in Jesus. I want you to hear it and then we'll be done. So this is Simon Manchester. I want to share this with you. He says, The key to salvation... The key to facing the judgment day is to begin by saying, God is my maker. Everything is in his hands. And then you say, but I'm going on to meet the judge and I'm going to end up in his hands. And then you say, because of the message of Jesus, I'm going to take myself and I'm going to put myself in the Savior's hands. And when you go to put yourself in the Savior's hands, you find, as you know, that there are injuries in those hands. There are stab wounds in those hands because he's so committed to your salvation. He's so committed to your rescue. He's so committed to your welfare and your eternity that he would pay himself everything that would keep you from eternal fellowship with him. And he's done it on the cross, paid it, carried it away. 
when you put yourself in his hands, you're able to look in the mirror and you're able to say, yes, it's true in a sense, my days are numbered. But Jesus has given me eternal life. It's true as I look at myself, I do not weigh sufficient for heaven. But God, because of Jesus, has credited to me everything I could ever need in order that I would be there. And it's true that I deserve to be divided or separated. But because of Jesus, he has joined me into the family and joined me there forever. Let's pray. Father, as we turn to you now, we pray that you would turn to us in mercy before you turn us to face you in judgment. Give us faith and faithfulness in our exile. Prepare us to speak to kings and to neighbors about the hope that's found in Jesus. Break our pride that looks at Belshazzar and only sees in him those we think need judgment and not our own sin, arrogance, and rebellion. Thank you for the nail-pierced hands of Jesus that declare a message of forgiveness by faith to those who turn to him. We pray all of this and we thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.